data streams about the weather can be used to predict how soybean futures are going to change in price. Satellite data streams can take pictures of the number of cars on the road and judge how traffic patterns are changing. Search engines can aggregate data from different queries and determine what people are most interested in. Data streams define how the world is changing over time. Technology companies process these data streams and make decisions based on that stream. The most direct example of this might be financial trading companies, which use all kinds of data streams to predict economic price changes. When Henry Picala worked on algorithmic trading systems, he saw how useful these data streams are, and he decided to build products around data streaming. Eventually, Henry started working on Streamer, a platform for data streams to be bought and sold on top of the Ethereum network. Streamer is an adaptation of technology that Henry worked on before he started working on the decentralized version. The original technology is a user interface for connecting data streams and building applications on top of them, and he acquired several customers for that platform when it was the original centralized platform version of what Streamer eventually became. But today, the vision for Streamer is something decentralized. However, the application infrastructure is still mostly centralized. Henry and his team are working on building out the decentralized version. Streamer has raised an ICO worth around 25 million euros. Most startups would not raise this amount of money before Series B, much less before they have a product with a large user base. In this episode, Henry discusses why they raised so much money and explains why ICOs are different than equity raises. The investors who participated in the Streamer ICO received the DataCoin token. Henry also explained why it makes sense for this ecosystem to have its own token. Henry Picala, you are the CEO of Streamer. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks, Jeff. Happy to be here. So before the show, we were just talking about music production, and it's funny because I think you are the, you are the second or third person who I've talked to in the Ethereum ecosystem really? who is who is running a, a company built on top of Ethereum, but also is a hobbyist electronic musician. Uh, the, the other one that comes to mind is Luis Quinde, who oh, yeah. uh, runs Aragon. But it's it, yeah, I don't know. It's but... interesting that there there seems to be some overlap between the the musical creativity and the ethereum based creativity yeah i think it's uh, it's something that's been known for quite some time that music and somehow math go together tend to be found in in the same people but but i, I don't know if that relates as far as, as blockchains and ethereum and so on but that's an in- interesting notion you also used to work in high frequency trading and i f- so I worked briefly at a, an options trading place uh, okay. right out of school. So I, cool. I wrote some code for an options trading place. And I found that there was actually a lot of musicians there, too. So there, there was, I, I think there definitely is this love of systems and mathematics and creativity that I guess you can find an applied area for that in both music and in, in trading. I mean, did, yeah. you find, did you find that to be the case in trading as well? Yeah, perhaps. I mean, in trading and in tech in general and programming and maybe math and in music, like all of these things, you kind of get to witness the results of your own work in quite a 
concrete way, maybe. It's a bit like handicraft or some artisan artisan stuff, you know. You, you, you do things with your hands and your brain and and get something real out of it. In, in trading, it maybe appears as just profits or, or something like applying a cool algorithm or machine learning or something. In building software, it appears as beautiful, innovative UIs and, and, and backends and on the blockchain it appears as new possibilities and inspiring ideas of a future decentralized world so all of these are maybe somehow connected how did you make your way from the high frequency trading world into working on blockchain related stuff well it's actually quite straightforward i mean i've always been working with real time data and all the way from from finance and then from algorithmic trading i went to build a kind of more generic real-time data platform which was kind of the streamer 1.0 version and running the cloud based on centralized technology um, building solutions on top of that for some enterprises and startups and other companies and then sometime one and a half years ago i had my second kind of uh I saw the light uh, for cryptos for the second time. I mean, I got interested about cryptos back in 2011, back when we were doing that trading thing with my co-founder, Nick, who is also a co-founder at, at Streamer. And we, we got super excited about Bitcoin, but it was so early that we didn't go all in on that and instead decided to continue on our trading efforts there, but not in crypto though, but in, rather in, in traditional uh, stock markets. And we kind of left the crypto out for quite a while, but then we got excited about it again, thanks to Ethereum and smart contracts and the kind of ideas about decentralizing the web and building new infrastructure for application development and all the promises that it, it brings uh, with it. And we kind of... Um, saw a possibility there to apply the background that we had in real-time data and analytics and data monetization in a new way in this decentralized space. And we began to think like, what would the package look like? What would, the, what would be the offering? What should we bring, uh, build? What use cases would it support? Who would be interested and so on? And then we kind of embarked on that new very interesting, very inspiring route there. So I think I'm getting an understanding for the history, for how you came to Streamer. So what you're working on at Streamer is a platform for data streams, for people to buy and sell data streams in a decentralized economy built on yes. Ethereum. And it sounds like the way that you got there is you were in finance, and in finance there's all these different data streams. So you've got like people that have weather data that's available. And then you have traders that want to trade on that weather data. Maybe they want to buy or sell corn futures or soy futures right. based on that data, you know, as well as all kinds of other proprietary data streams that are hard to acquire and hard to link up to a high speed connection to. And so I can imagine how you ended up in, you know, building a, a a centralized platform is is that, is that's the trajectory that you took to get to that centralized platform where you're connecting different data streams yeah it is for sure the one thing that i learned in trading is that real-time data can have huge value depending on how it gets used and how it gets combined with 
other data and how it gets made available to those people that find it useful and valuable in their own own fields. So from that idea, we start to build that centralized platform um, for, for data distribution and analytics. And that's also the starting point that we have today. So we, instead of starting from scratch, we started with the centralized platform and our roadmap consists of kind of iteratively decentralizing the different layers and components that take part in that system. So we are happy about that. And that's one strategy to take that you can, uh, from day one, you can deliver something that's functional into the community instead of, you know, raising money and then disappearing for three years into a cave to build some software and then maybe emerge with something that works. So we find this to be a very productive route and um, allows us to have meaningful conversations with with partners, data providers, and, and our users, of course. So your centralized platform that you started before Ethereum, yeah. you're taking that and incrementally decentralizing it. Exactly, exactly. Of course, much of that will need to be rebuilt from scratch to support the kind of decentralized use cases. But since it's a, it's a modular and layered architecture, we can do that bit by bit and build kind of in-between versions, which are hybrid um, hybrid infrastructure where part of the data uh, is centralized and part of the data is on, on the blockchain. And we can have things like permissions, access control, payments happening on the blockchain while still using parts of the centralized stack to deliver excellent user experiences and so on. So in the centralized version that you have today, who are the people that are exchanging dollars and data? Who are the kinds of customers and data providers that are making exchanges? So the marketplace is something that we're currently building. So nobody just yet. What we have currently up and running is the data delivery infrastructure, which is basically like massively scalable publish subscribe messaging. And we have our analytics engine that that is also based on centralized technology and employs uh, this kind of visual programming environment for prototyping and getting your hands dirty with the data, enabling people to build prototypes, build automation on top of real-time data, connect data to smart contracts and build interactions with the Ethereum blockchain and so on. So it's mainly the data traffic that's happening on the platform at the moment is for mainly internal purposes of the users. And we're currently setting up the marketplace. We've said that we will launch it in production this year. And actually the work is quite advanced already. So that will be an interesting milestone to reach for sure. So in the centralized model that you started with, when you went from finance to building this centralized, infra this cloud infrastructure for people to use data streams, what was that product? Did that product have customers or were you really early on when you pivoted to focusing on built making it decentralized? Yeah, it wasn't early on. It wasn't established either. We had a, a pretty long R&D sprint there. And actually, the roots of that software already go back to the algorithmic trading stuff. So it's kind of been in the works for a long time. The productization we started in 2014. We had the major customers in there. But of course, we kind of 
pivoted in a, in a crucial moment. And I think that was a good move to make because we were mostly building solutions. Like we were the ones to implement solutions to our customers. And we hadn't yet reached the kind of stage of productization that we could have others take our platform, build something cool on top of that for their customers. So that would have been the next step. But then again, the promise of decentralization was so strong. It was so inspiring that we suddenly got this huge drive to go there and try to build something that's actually not just a tool and competing with the existing cloud services, but actually build something that's completely new in the world and disruptive enables new business cases and new data monetization patterns for for everyone. So we kind of just ditched the idea of going with the centralized solution and rather like skipped uh, two squares ahead to the future and started build a future version, a streamer 2.0, if you will. Okay. So I think now I'm understanding the full timeline. So you started building the technology behind streamer when you were at an algorithmic trading company, and that was just technology to visualize and connect data streams to each other and to act on those data streams with trades. And then you said, let's productize this and offer it to perhaps other trading companies. And then other trading companies can link together data streams and use them. But it wasn't exactly this marketplace for data streams. It was really just a UI yeah, and yeah. a way to to connect data streams to each other and act on them. Is that accurate? Yeah, yeah. But not just for trading. I mean, in trading, we saw that the similar kind of pattern will present itself in other business verticals as well. Like in trading, you ingest data from the stock market, then apply some model that makes decisions about buying and selling stocks, right? But all the fields where you can get this kind of real-time data, especially thanks to IoT with the sudden explosion of like measurement devices being spread out into the world, suddenly companies, organizations, even individuals have such a huge amount of real-time data at their disposal that they can suddenly build automation uh, if they're given the right tools. And one thing that's always interested me personally is how to bring the data closer to people who are the kind of domain experts and who know what the data means and kind of extract meaningful information out of the data. And that's why we built the the visual programming environment to make it easier for these domain experts to find value in the data and build automation. So I totally understand the vision that you're going for. You want a marketplace for data streams for people to be able to publish data streams and purchase subscriptions to those data streams and to be connected to one another. And you've got this nice UI where people could build those connections. One question I have is why does this need to be decentralized? Why couldn't you just have a marketplace for data streams running on AWS, for example? (laughs) Sure. We could, for sure. And and perhaps there even are some, but that's not as good a selling point because there are trust issues. Uh, centralized marketplaces always take a cut on, on the sales that's happening there. We wouldn't be any better than uh, if... Google or Facebook or whoever or Amazon themselves set up a a data marketplace, which they could. Currently, they are getting most of the data 
in the world one way or another. And that's kind of disturbing that a handful of these large companies get most of the world's data. And only by building a decentralized infrastructure and a decentralized marketplace can we kind of break free from this pattern of some single entity having control on all the data that machines, organizations, applications, and people produce. And that also makes the the system kind of work without us. I mean, we are a startup and we faced this problem back in the old line of business when we were doing kind of cloud analytics that big enterprises don't play well uh, together with small startups because they have the vendor risk there. The, the small startup might just disappear and then they're left with with nothing. But in, instead of building this decentralized technology and infrastructure, which is open source, it's not run by us, but it's, it's eventually run by the community. This makes it immune to the vendor risk to, to some extent. So there's no obstacle for even the big boys to jump in and participate in that ecosystem because there's less risk involved. Plus the network effects of having a decentralized marketplace are an order of magnitude better than a centralized marketplace because I mean, if Google had a data marketplace, who would go out there and, you know, tell their friends and rave about it, about the Google marketplace? But if there's like a shared marketplace that's not really streamers marketplace, even though we are developing it, but it's the community's marketplace. So the participants in that ecosystem will be incentivized to to make it better and help make it better and provide data in there and consume data in there. So I think there's an advantage as well. Okay, so I'm a little confused there because so let's take GitHub, for example. GitHub is a centralized place where people publish open source code sure and i have an incentive to make the github ecosystem better because i derive value from the github ecosystem so github has network effects it does of course so like if somebody were to tell me hey i want to build github on the ethereum blockchain i would say to them I mean, that's great because, you know, you can't censor me, for example. I guess that would be an argument against the, you know, that would be an argument to to decentralize the underlying infrastructure. But as far as the use case itself, GitHub on centralized infrastructure does a pretty good job. And it also seems like a data stream economy on top of centralized infrastructure that I, it's not clear to me why that running on decentralized infrastructure, that running on Ethereum, is that much better unless you're talking about, you know, censorable data streams. But I guess quite understand is if if you're on this trajectory to gradually move from centralization to decentralization, why not first prove out the data stream marketplace on centralized infrastructure? Because there's nothing like I don't know of any centralized infrastructure data stream economy other than there are specific companies that sure. have specific APIs like the Yelp API. You consider the Yelp API a stream that is on a marketplace kind of. But yeah, why not try to build this on a centralized infrastructure first to prove that it's actually something that people want? But that's indeed what we are doing. So we'll first launch the marketplace that will be based on a hybrid infrastructure. So we are, we are able to leverage the existing 
network that we have to build the marketplace, but we can use the blockchain for certain things such as identity and payments because they are far superior to what, what exists in the kind of centralized world. Like instead of inputting your credit card details, you can just press a button to, to make a transaction and that will be great. But that is what we are doing and building the decentralized infrastructure will be a long-term project. It's, it's not easy by any means and it will take a few years to accomplish. So building applications on top, improving the use cases, improving or starting to build the kind of real-time data economy and community around it will be possible much sooner by leveraging the centralized technology in there. But regarding your GitHub example, I think that's a that's a very good comparison there. There's two issues that you can uh, you can find in there, given that they have indeed successfully built a working ecosystem in there. But one thing is, do you trust GitHub? Well, probably you do, but how can you really know that GitHub doesn't like look at your private repositories or or whatever? So so you're placing a, a huge amount of trust in GitHub and thanks to their good PR, they have profiled themselves as a trustworthy company that doesn't do these things. Maybe if if the repositories were run by, I don't know, Facebook or, or, or whoever, you might have some issues in, in placing your code in there. And, and this is to some extent solved by the decentralized technology. Another thing there is how do you, can you have an economic incentive on GitHub, right? Do you, can you actually, can you actually make, for example, can you have a stake in GitHub? Well, if it's a publicly traded company, then of course you can. But if it's not, then it's very hard for the average user to like a product and have some kind of economic stake in that ecosystem that's that's almost impossible but thanks thanks to the kind of tokenization of new um, decentralized applications this is also possible to those interested in in participating in the ecosystem in that way so you have the token which represents obviously the value in the data itself as it's being used as a payment uh, means of payment on the marketplace but it also represents the value in the overall ecosystem mm. so the github trust example i mean you could build a version of github that runs on centralized infrastructure that would have assurances of trust sure it could have end-to-end -end encryption yeah for example exactly happening in yeah so you don't necessarily need decentralized technology to build a transparent company right yeah for sure for sure and and luckily transparent companies have been built um, before and hopefully will be built in the future as well so i'm not saying that i'm saying maybe that the decentralization gives a new opportunity to build projects that are trustless and transparent by default so traditional companies need to go through a whole lot of effort to become transparent and to do their PR correctly to appear as transparent and lovable by their users. And instead, the decentralized products somehow have a different starting point. They start from open source. They start from transparency. They start from 
trying to benefit the community and not just turn a profit, which is eventually what all the traditional companies are looking to do. So there's some kind of fundamental differences there, but but sure, a similar end result, if you accept the the need to trust, can be established for sure. Okay, so you mentioned the identity and payments system on top of Ethereum being better than the centralized alternatives. Can you contrast the centralized options for identity and payments with those available on Ethereum? Sure. Of course, here I may I might have to make the note that this is very young and immature technology when, when we're speaking about the blockchain. So the thing, I think one place where it falls short today is, is the usability side. So we can't really compare the usability of of paying on the blockchain versus paying on the credit card because they it's it's not really a fair comparison in in that sense because the other one has sent, uh, like decades of history and development behind it and the other one is is brand new but the promise is amazing you can make payments without any middleman directly from one say data producer to a data consumer no setting up of uh, APIs to ingest the data or take in the credit card payments, taking care about your credit card details, security when it's stored somewhere and so on. On the blockchain, you don't have, you don't have these problems. The ideal use case is that you go on a marketplace, you have a buy button there, you press that and, and you get the product. And this is achievable. With centralized technology, for example, you go you go on to the app store and you see some apps and you press buy and everything just happens. But this is due to the various middlemen in there operating the system and getting a cut. Like Apple takes 30% of the app sales. Then there's the credit card company that takes a few percent. And, and all of this, this chain continues on and on. And now we can have direct interaction between the buyers, which also means they don't even need to be human beings. They can be machines. Like there could be a machine that's producing some data, like a car, say, driving around and measuring something like the road condition or the cell network uh, signal strength or something like this, and selling that data to other interested parties like the the cell stations or the network operator or the smart city that can automatically detect the condition or, or if, if some roads are in bad condition or things like this. And this can happen automatically and give rise to data economy of machines because there's no longer the need for the human middleman or the human credit card holder to enter those details. It's rather based on a private key, which is your identity and your wallet and your value. And you can use that to interact with the system and other machines or people or organizations or whoever are participating in that, in that ecosystem. So it kind of brings down the barrier of automation and makes it somehow more direct for everyone. Does that make sense? Well, kind of. So a few counterarguments there. So in terms of the the data itself, so if I wanted to purchase data about cars that are driving around, I think I would want to purchase that data from Lyft or from Waymo or from Uber. 
And it doesn't seem problem like if they are willing to share it on a centralized platform. It do, uh, first of all, it do, that doesn't seem problematic because if like let's say there's you know there are trading companies that want to monetize that data stream, that doesn't infringe on Uber or Waymo's profit opportunity. So again, like if there were a desire to ha- have access to that kind of data stream, I'm still not quite convinced that this couldn't exist on centralized infrastructure but just to also go in on your your payments point so on in the the vision that you've portrayed you know you talk negatively about middlemen but one of the advantages of all the middlemen in the traditional payment system is that if somebody defrauds you as a customer there is recourse. So if somebody were to go on Streamer, onto the Streamer economy, and to start to publish data that said, hey, this is data about a collection of soybean farms around the world. You can consume that data and you can trade on it. And if I start consuming that data stream and I start trading on it, and then I'm like, why are my trades all going the wrong direction? And then I inspect the data further and I compare it to some other data source. I'm like, this data is totally bunk. None of it makes sense. None of it's accurate. If I were doing that on a centralized payment system, I would be able to get a refund. But if I'm doing that on the Ethereum blockchain, well, sorry, there's no refunds on <laughs> Ethereum. And there's, you know, maybe there yeah. will be infrastructure for that someday. But then we're basically, first of all, that's really far off. And second of all, that starts to look a whole lot more like traditional <laughs> banking infrastructure. So it's, it's just, it's not clear to me that the, the payment sure. system for this kind of use case, is actually superior. I, I actually think this is a type of use case where you want middlemen. Yeah, in some sense. But, okay, so so the new technology enables directness, but it doesn't mean that it has to be direct. It just enables that. So there can still be opportunities like insurances or something like that. this that can be built on top of that, kind of adding a middleman which can have like varying varying levels of, of trustlessness happening on there. So it's like a different kind of ground to build in. In the traditional systems, you're limited by by having to trust somebody and not take the responsibility so much on yourself. And in the blockchain world, the kind of default starting point is that all the responsibility is on you. And if something bad happens, you lose the money. But it doesn't need to be that like that. It can we, we can build mechanisms that can be trustless, but still guarantee you that if you get screwed over, you can get a refund. Like data producers can stake, uh, can, they can place a stake um, to guarantee the, the quality of the data. In If they commit a fraud, they will lose that stake. Of course, the kind of dispute resolution is always a complicated thing to implement. Um, but there are some patterns that will work there. And as I said, there can be kind of um, trust providers or kind of middlemen who are basing on this trustless technology to implement the good parts of what we have in the in the centralized economy. So I do recognize the problems there, but as we know, it's quite immature at the moment and it will probably look quite different in, in say, five to ten years. And most of these problems will probably be overcome in one way or another. So if maybe this platform does exist on centralized technology. I mean, I guess there are data providers that will provide you with a high-speed 
data feed of information about soybean farms or sure, cars sure, driving around sure. the world. These are all silos. I mean, they, they're all silos. Okay. Yeah, yeah. The providers need to set up their own systems and try to attract the the consumers of the data to their little silo. So the kind of threshold of starting to provide data is large because you have to set up the infrastructure to do so, plus the marketing efforts to attract uh, users for your data are considerable as well, as opposed to a, a kind of central, but not centralized, but central place where people could, could get all the data that they need and easily also provide data. This makes providing data easy enough even for individuals. You know, individuals would never set up an API and credit card payments to sell their, for example, personal data or health data or, or location data, whatever. But this kind of makes it possible. So there could be an application ecosystem that measures something uh, about its users, enables them to earn on that. So today, like my data is going to Google and Facebook and I'm not getting money out of it. I'm getting maybe an application that I can use, but Google and Facebook and the other big ones, they are able, they're the ones who are able to monetize the data because they, they have operations of size uh, large enough to overcome these, these thresholds. And they're not uh, even sharing that data. Usually your question earlier about why wouldn't you buy that data from Waze or whoever, but they tend not to share the data because they get some kind of business advantage out of keeping the data in their own silo and using it internally. And what we are super interested in is how to enable the transformation there, how to make it profitable for those who collect data to find the external use and value of the data, which is currently unknown. Like companies uh, collect data in their internal silos, but by doing so, they also place a lid, they place a cap on the value that can be extracted out of that data. And the value outside that silo is completely unknown. And it's hard to reach without overcoming those thresholds. So are you suggesting that individuals are going to share their data on Streamer because they're going to be paid monetary rewards in contrast to how they share their data with Facebook and Google and get a search engine or a social network? Yeah, absolutely. It's, of course, not sure what the killer applications will be. It's probably not going to be a search engine or a social media. But imagine that you could earn money by driving around in your car. I mean, typically that costs you money because you have to pay for, for the gas. But perhaps the rewards, like given a, a data economy that's established enough, you could have, for example, rental cars that are free to use because the, the costs of renting the car are offset by the data that you can produce by going around and collecting all the data that's out there in the world. But again, the, we've had the technology to do that for probably a decade or more, and I have not seen a data stream economy come up. So why would it happen now that it's on Ethereum? <laughs> It's not, I don't think it's about Ethereum. It's about how the kind of mind shift needs to happen towards sharing data and enabling the direct monetization there. It's simply too difficult in the old world to enable people to earn like 
tenths of a dollar because there's overhead in every every transaction that's being made there. Of course, the same applies today to Ethereum. The, the kind of transaction costs there are relatively high, but this is something that will be solved in the future for sure. So we can go down to smaller and smaller payments micropayments, um, and this will also enable people to monetize their data uh, in a more kind of fine-grained way. Today, data is only valuable if it's like large, if the ecosystem is large, you're, like, you run a stock market and you're selling that data to traders. That's like a huge, uh, that's like an ocean liner, but, but we can enable like little boats to float on the same data ocean as well. So to be clear, you're saying that you think that the the reason that my Fitbit does not publish data to a publicly accessible data stream, the reason that my car does not publish data to a publicly accessible data stream, it is because of transaction costs, it's because of a mindset issue. Is that what you're saying? I'm saying that probably the reason is because they want you they want to lock you in into that ecosystem. So your Fitbit is not sharing the data or making it easily accessible to outside because they want you to buy another Fitbit product and kind of stay in the family. But let's say you had two competing wrist computers. You have Fitbit which which doesn't let you share the data or monetize the data. And there's another wristband that earns you $3 a day just for wearing it. So which one would you choose? The centralized approach is a kind of losing thought there because it can be overrun by those who actually enable the end users to monetize their own data. And this is what I believe in. But it will take some time for these products to appear, for the technology to be um, mature enough. The business models will change. But kind of keeping things secret cannot it, it simply cannot be the winning solution. Like in a hundred years, it has vanished off this earth. And this is my prediction. I hope I live to see it. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, it, it makes sense to have the choice. Yeah. I mean, to have the choice. Why wouldn't you have some way where you have the choice to share your data and receive payment, direct payment for it, rather than to receive a service that is making money through advertising. I would agree with you that that experiment has not really been run. Yeah. And, and wouldn't so, that be superior, right? If, if the product is the same, they both look nice and they have the same features and so on. So if it comes down to that selection, other, the other one enables you to earn money. That's amazing. I mean, that's not clear to me. That's not clear to me. But I, then again, I'm kind of a fan of uh, <laughs> of being surveilled and being served useful ads. And I, I think for me, that's less of a big deal than it is for a lot of people. But that's sure. a totally different conversation. Sure. Let's talk about ICOs. So the streamer ICO raised about 25 million euros through the ICO. Can you describe the ICO process? Sure, sure. So it was quite an effort for sure. So it started out with the the kind of idea. Most of last year we spent on, on thinking about this stuff. We made a white paper that came out in May last year. And before that, we had done our kind of first public pitch of the idea at EdCon in, in February in Paris. 
And we got a lot of positive feedback on that and decided to move forward. So white paper in May, then we had several stages of, of the actual token launch. So there were some private, private pre-sales or pre-contributions um, for the token launch. Then we had a public pre-contribution round in September and finally the crowd contribution round in October last year. And ended up, as you said, raising 30 million Swiss francs, which is approximately equivalent to 25, 26 uh, million euros. So it, it involved a lot of community building, just getting feedback, getting users, crystallizing the idea and, and kind of um, making everything smoother and, and trying to find the right track for the project. Yeah. So the coin is called the data coin. How does the data coin token fit into the streamer economy? What does the data coin token do? Sure. So it has two two main purposes there. So it acts as a means of payment on the marketplace. So you can have data streams for which licenses can be bought using this DataCoin token. It's also a central usage element on the streamer network. So because we have decentralization and there are community members who run the nodes, there's an incentivization structure, which is kind of comparable to mining in Bitcoin, for example, or Ethereum. But instead of solving this artificial um, hashing problem in there. Uh, in our network, the, the people who run the nodes, they contribute bandwidth and storage onto the streamer network to, to produce the delivery uh, service of data on the network. So they're doing, they're doing work, they're contributing resources to the network, and uh, they're able to earn the token in reward rewards uh, for doing so. Why do you need to issue a token for that? Why not just have Ethereum smart contracts facilitating the logic of this system and use Ether to pay for it? Sure. That's a great question and an important one to get asked. The, the first reason is that by using our own token, we can separate the kind of holders and people who use the token from other users on the Ethereum network. So if we used Ether, we can't, we can't really track which Ether is a part of our ecosystem and community and, and which is not. So, so they kind of get mixed in there, which is okay. But for some purposes, for example, we are building this reputation system into our network, which enables the more reputable uh, nodes to get more responsibility in the network or on the marketplace, the more reputable sellers can gain more visibility and, and appear to be more trustworthy by participating in the token ecosystem. So we can track things like how, um, how much data they earned or spent or well, but every smart contract has a database associated with sure, it, so you could just keep sure. track of who is paying what and when. You don't necessarily need a token to track people. Sure, but when it gets transferred, then it gets mixed up. When it goes to centralized places like exchanges, then it gets the, the trace gets lost. So the, the token enables us to do a 
bit more it allows us a bit more flexibility it also has features that if ether doesn't have we can have like um, allowances granted to smart contracts so technically there are some differences of course it also uh, enables um, the project to fund itself and there's no denying uh, in that so that's why the ico is also important and a magnificent new way to to fund open source projects which so far have been dependent on donations or doing some commercial offerings on the side so that's that's completely disruptive and, and i think the kind of app tokens will will find their place uh, as well and in our ecosystem it just enables more flexibility compared and more kind of clear cut control we could have like plasma side chains operating the the data token ecosystem or micropayments by keeping it kind of separated in there and stuff like that in the future so it's it's a more future proof approach it gives us more flexibility today plus it allows us to fund the project which is kind of a starting point without which it wouldn't happen, right? Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think the fundraising aspect of it, it, it makes complete sense. And even if you could just use Ether plus smart contracts to basically you have colored coins on Ethereum that facilitate all of your functionality, I do think it is defensible to say, actually, we're, even though we could do it in an equivalent fashion, we're going to issue a token because we want to raise some money and we want to have people that have a stake in the system we want to have our own token. I think that's justifiable. And then we get to the question of why are these ICOs, why do they have such a premium associated with them compared to companies that are at an equivalent stage that are raising a Series A or a Series B or a seed round? There's clearly a premium associated with these tokens. One argument for that premium is that you have a liquidity premium you know when you buy a token yeah, yeah, the yeah. token is more liquid and therefore when you put in it when you invest in a token it makes sense for you to be paying more for that token because you can uh, exit from that earlier there's more liquidity associated with it so then we get to the question of is the current market liquidity premium or at least the liquidity premium when streamers specifically raised was it appropriate given the stage of the company? So like most companies don't raise $25 million or 25 million euros until they're at a stage where they need to scale dramatically. Like $25 million is like a series B or series C round in traditional companies. And you're raising that without really having customers, without having users, that's not really true. I mean, we did have customers and users. Uh, if you remember, we have a working product to start with. So we are not really just starting with a white paper on idea. We have something that's already like halfway productized and being used out there. So that maybe that's one differentiating factor for us. But I do agree with you that the market is probably in, in some kind of... Uh, hype cycle the liquidity premium is is one component there but another thing to consider is that the ico project they only get to raise funds once basically a typical startup goes through a range of fundraising rounds starting from angel rounds then going to series a b c they can kind of turn the boat 
as they go and decide how much money they they need at each stage so they get more visibility into what's happening and in some sense the ico projects they raise all the money they're going to need up front which is rather difficult so there could be i think a fruitful well you could still raise equity yeah. rounds right you could still yeah. do a classic series a and series b because that's a different pool of equity than the token you could, but what is the equity worth? I mean, why would it be worth anything in this case? So it's interesting how the value of the company or the ecosystem is kind of in the token and not the actual stock of the company. And it's it's unclear what the stock might be worth. So it's much harder for the companies to raise equity funding. Plus, not all of them are companies in the first place. There are foundations, there are DAOs. Uh, so the kind of pool of entities operating in this space is much more diverse than the traditional kind of startup community. Okay, so just to zoom in on the question of customers, like how many customers you have and and who those customers are, from my understanding of what you said earlier, the customers that you have, what they are currently purchasing or what they are bought in on is a way to visualize and use proprietary data streams for trading systems. That's a very different use case than what the streamer ICO is raising on. The streamer ICO is raising on this vision of a decentralized world where individuals are giving up their data and cars are giving up their data and so on. Am I correct here? Like that's that's a very different customer set than what you actually have today. It is, but but the modern day streamer is not for trading, so there's a misconception there. Okay. So it's a broad, uh, it's a bo- broad generic platform for any kind of data, whether its uh, or its origin is financial, IoT, social media, smart cities, whatever. So it's agnostic. Oh, so you you do have customers like that that are doing smart cities and stuff on. Yeah, well, we used to, but uh, before the pivots. But basically, once we started on the new track, we kind of kicked out the old customers because we were doing consulting and solution delivery for them. And that was not where our heart was. So it made more sense for us to to kind of concentrate on the product building, which is what we really, really want to do and feel that that it is the successful path. So we kind of took a little time out from serving customers to turning the ship into a spaceship and go where we want to go. Okay. So what's the like the unlocking schedule for the money raised in the ICO? Like and who gets the money raised in the ICO? Is that does that money get allocated to founders? How does it get allocated to the company? Where is that money allocated and what's the unlocking the unlocking schedule or the vesting schedule for that money? Yeah. So all of the raised funds goes to the company and it doesn't have an enforced unlocking scheme. So it's at full discretion of the company. We have communicated how the money will be spent and some approximate timetables and we are sticking to those for sure so we try to go for full transparency so if there's anything questionable about the use of the money then we're happy to to elaborate for sure but we are four months into the project almost five months and things are moving quickly forward and exactly as planned Cool. So does that mean, like, do you publicize what the salaries of people in the company are or how many tokens they're getting or the vesting schedule for those tokens? 
Yeah, so the token distribution is is indeed known, not to the individual level, but I think that is quite easy to deduce by by looking at the blockchain, like like who is who, if somebody cares. It would be possible to publish like balance sheets and quarterly reports. I mean, if you think about public listed companies, they have regulation that enforce them to uh, have a, a certain level of transparency into the financials. And I think that would be excellent for the crypto projects as well. It's of course like setting that up requires some resources, which is always away from driving the project forward. But I think we do need in this space more um, more regulation that would be good for everyone and more transparency. And all of these help fight fraud, for example. So the money raised cannot disappear into a black hole. There needs to be results delivered. Many projects are open source, in which case anyone interested can see what's happening, that actually things are being done, um, products are being released, and so on. In our case, you can go and sign up and start using the product right away. It's up and there, uh, up and running, it's out there. So I hope all of these kind of reduce the risk of participating in the streamer ecosystem. We welcome anyone to drop by our offices and say hi. We're actual real people here, even though that, that gets sometimes uh, forgotten in the crypto community, which is somehow so anonymous and so faceless somehow, you know, <laughs> yeah. that there's actual flesh and blood behind the code that's being written <laughs> and so on. But luckily, the meetup community and, and all of that is, is buzzing and buzzing. And here in Zug, we have a little crypto valley and like interaction between projects. And that, that's great as well. One of the, the best reasons to be here. Okay. All right. Well, well, Henry, thanks for coming on the show and talking about Streamer. It's been really great to learn about it. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Wow.